Man. Can you do some leads on that too while you're also doing that next time? Good morning, church. Yeah, we got this chair up here for Mark. I'm going to try it out and see if that works. Oh, I like it. So, uh, if you're here for the first time, my name is John. I'm the pastor here at the Gathering Place Church. And uh, i got a great, um, well, a little bulletin blooper, not in our bulletins, but somebody else's. It says, don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. We like to help people around here, not hurt. And i got a great testimony. I like to read testimonies. Uh, consistently because testimonies literally means to do again in the Hebrew the word testimony means to do again the whole book of Deuteronomy is testimonies of what the Lord has done in our lives so that you don't forget and you can get fresh faith for your current situation by not forgetting what the Lord has done with for you in the past and so um, this great testimony came in this is from Gary and Kathy Mancini who have a, uh, a deliverance ministry here in our church. Uh, somebody came up for prayer last Sunday, broken over something that happened to them at work. The attack was, uh, the attack was, was devastating. And so we met with her again on Monday. And as we got into prayer, it became clear that some deliverance was needed for several things she'd been dealing with since a child. Anybody can relate to that? Just raise your hand. If you can, okay. All right. My children, don't raise your hands. She thought that they had been dealt with in Sozo. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> Throw your minister under the bus this morning. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hey, it's all it's all chain, re- chain reaction, right? Everybody gives their does their part until you get the breakthrough. So, if Sozo doesn't help you, then you can go to Gary and Kathy. No, she said so. But clearly, there was more. The Lord delivered her from several things that she had been dealing with for decades. I love these kind of testimonies, don't you? The deliverance was quite physical. She was shocked at some of the manifestations she experienced, but she knew it was real. She walked out of there with peace and reassurance. She says she had not felt for years. The next day, she came to our Connect group, and somebody in our Connect group came up to her and said, Your countenance is totally different. This is just this week. And the lady said she shared with the group what she had experienced in prayer. And uh, Kathy spoke to her, uh, Gary spoke to her again um, the next day, and she was still walking in victory. The Lord is so good. Isn't the Lord good? One of the reasons I share that, not only because we like to share testimonies here at the Gathering Place, showing that God is doing miracles today, but um, I'm also reading Mark's new book. Isn't it great to say new book, Mark, and not your first book? Yeah, this is another book. His first book was awesome, but uh, I'm pre-reading his, his new book, um, reluctantly supernatural in the age of reason. And uh, what it talks about is how uh, the church cannot downshift on the supernatural. Because if all we are is teaching without demonstration of the power of God, people don't know if it's really real. And so then the supernatural gets relegated and delegated to the dark side. Uh, and people are really curious about the supernatural because we know we are made for more. So, um, Mark, thank you for reading, writing that book. I'm enjoying it. It's a really, really great book. And we, it is a gift to have Mark 
in our church, on our staff, and as one of our pastors. He's As somebody asked me this week what I was teaching on, I said, well, uh, he didn't go to our church. I said, oh, well, uh, one, of, one of our people on the teaching team's uh, Sharon, they said, oh, you want to give, give the young guy a shot? And I said, well, not really. Not necessarily. I said, uh, he is, he is uh, a seasoned, prophetic teacher, and uh, we are lucky to have him. So, Mark Coppersmith. Check, check. Perfect. Well, I get the MRI on Thursday, and they're going to find out if the if the fracture has healed itself, which would be. Uh, which would be wonderful if it did. So if you guys wouldn't mind keeping that in your prayers this week, that would be very wonderful. And if not, it's another... Hey, why don't you just stretch out your hands and do it right now? Is this a supernatural church or not? All right, let's just pray for it. Get up here, Mary. We're going worldwide. All right, here we go. All right. All right, short, sweet, and powerful. Here we Always, go. because I am short and sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Father, right now we lift up our Mark Coppersmith, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness these last weeks, Lord, on crutches, because he has been believing in faith that you are a God who can heal, yes. and you know this fracture, and you know it can be healed. So, Father, we reach out our hearts Jesus. and our hands, believing in the healing power Jesus. of Jesus Christ. We lift up his name, the power of Jesus' name, over Mark Coppersmith. Yes, and, Lord, Lord, we expect to hear a good report. Yes, Lord. Amen. 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 Do I thank Mary for the Yes. Well, before I start teaching, I want to tell you about an adventure I had last night. Uh, I went to the women's meeting. I, I saw the whole thing. I was there for the whole meeting. You're thinking that I'm kidding, but I'm not. You see, Mary's husband and I are very close friends, and we decided to cook our massive, huge ribeyes. Well, the women ate salad. <laughs> but um, it was, I, I, I've said this to so many people. It made me so happy to see the good time that you guys had last night. And the quality of your love and fellowship was really inspirational. And I breathed an an estrogen-rich atmosphere for almost five hours. And I just want to go decorate a living room. (laughs) I I just can't wait. Anyway. You people grow up. Stop with the humor. It's not, this is a church. For gosh sakes, get a grip. Okay. Uh, the series that we're on, Relationships That Last. And um, 
Today we're going to look at the last, the lasting part of relationships. What makes a relationship last? Because we're not looking for two ships passing in the night relationships, and we're not looking for acquaintance ships. We're looking for friendships. We're looking for relationships that last. So let's open with a question. I wish I, well, I actually don't. I'm glad I don't have a smartphone. But if I had a smartphone, I would do what John does, and I would say, text into this number, and the first person that, that gets this correct gets to help me decorate a living room or, or something like that. But you're just going to have to shout out your answers. And there is no prize for this. So just do it on the honor system. What is the key to making lasting relationships? What are we looking for? Hmm? Okay, self, selflessness. Honesty, which often people say communication. Faithfulness. Love. Trust. Forgiveness, servanthood, unconditional love, long-suffering. Okay, you guys, everything you said is true. But there's two words out of those that sum up what causes relationships to last. See, everything you've listed but two words don't cause relationships to last. They improve relationships, but they don't work unless this other word is involved in the equation. And it has to do with faithfulness, and it has to do with long-suffering, and the word is commitment. Without commitment, all those other aspects of a relationship will ultimately fail. It's commitment, it's the hanging in in a relationship through commitment, that allows everything else that was said this morning to play its rightful place in improving that relationship so you have a relationship you want to hang in with. Are you with me? We cannot underestimate the value of commitment. Most relationships start out bright and shiny, and we're excited about them. And then within, I don't know, a year, two years, three years, they're tarnished. They're tarnished by human failure. And the tendency when that happens is to trash that relationship and find a new shiny one. And our culture is based on disposability. We live in a disposable culture. And once you accept that as a, as a matter of life in the products that you buy, you begin to accept that as normal in your relationships. And it's only commitment that will overcome the disposable culture that we live in. God is a person who values his relationships and he is perfectly committed to them. God, I say, I say this many times, but I want you to think about it because when you begin to see God this way, and you theologize the Bible from this perspective, everything changes. God does not value relationships. He is a relationship. We're not talking about something that he thinks is a good thing. We're talking about the quintessential nature of God. God is three beings. Love in love with love. Like a triangle. 
And the love goes between them back and forth. And it, and it circulates very quickly. And they are so in love with each other that they are one. They're so in love that they are one, but they are three personalities, love in love with love. He doesn't value relationships. He is a relationship. So I know some of you are tired of hearing this, but there's a lot of new people here, new to the church that haven't heard me harp on this. So I'm going to harp on it one more time. If we want to reveal the nature of God to the world because he is a relationship, that revelation will be through our relationships. Hello? Get it? If we're trying to portray a relationship God who is a relationship to the world, the only way to do it with integrity is through our relationships. He doesn't value relationships. He is a relationship. And so when we look at any issue of sin, the real question to ask is not, is it bad? The question to ask is, does it damage relationships? You know, we've got this hierarchy of sins where there's some that are really bad and others aren't so bad. You know what the worst one of all is? Pride. For the simple reason that it destroys relationships more effectively than any other sin. But when was the last time you heard of a church that disciplined someone for pride? I only know, I only know it's happened once in, in, in my entire years of hanging around the church. I've only seen one church that ever disciplined someone for pride. And yet it runs rampant and destroys relationships. And how about this one? Gossip. Gossip is murder of the character. And nothing will destroy a church quicker than allowing a spirit of gossip to reign and rule in it. But do we hear that? Oh no, we talk about the gays and we talk about a whole lot of other things, but we don't talk about the things that destroy relationships. God grieves over broken relationships. So commitment, you know, the Bible says be, be perfect as I am perfect. God says be perfect as I am perfect. Well, if he's perfectly committed, then commitment should be an extremely high value for us. Right near the top of the heap, if not the top of the heap. As I said, commitment facilitates all of the other things that improve a relationship. But without it, they won't last and therefore the relationship won't last. So here's the question. Where do we learn commitment? Listen, nobody's born full of commitment. My aunt once wrote my mother when we were little tiny children and my aunt was younger and she was just having her kids and we were, you know, in in eight or nine or ten years old and these little cousins were being born and she wrote my mother a letter and she said, why is the first word my children learn mine and it takes years before they learn yours? Isn't that interesting? See, we 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 don't come out of the womb saying... Gosh, I just want to be committed. We come out of the womb basically saying, what's in it for me? That's our human nature. So you don't, you don't acquire commitment by accident. You must learn commitment. What is God's laboratory of commitment development? Okay. I, I think that's the beginning one is the nuclear family. And then what's the second one as you age? 
Yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. I, I'm sorry. I just think marriage. I, I think marriage, of all of our human relationships, marriage takes the greatest and demands the greatest commitment, I think. And that's a school of commitment. And the nuclear family is a school of commitment. But let me ask you this. If we say uh, family is a commitment, but you live a thousand miles from your closest sibling, and I live over, I live almost 2,000 miles from my entire family. I don't get to see them very often. I'm not learning commitment in my nuclear family. So I'm learning commitment in my marriage and some other places. But look, what if you're single? What if you're single and your family's somewhat distant and you don't get to see them that often? Where are you going to learn? Who said church? If you want, because I really like you. We haven't met, but I'm glad you're here. There's a copy of my first book, Is God Religious? And it's sitting out on the book table. You just go and steal it. I want you to, there's your reward. Guys, look, the crucible, the lab, the place where we learn commitment is the church. It's the best place to learn it because it's full of his presence and he blesses it with his presence and he promises to bless our relationships with his Holy Spirit so that when we attempt commitment in the church, we have a supernatural power supply that's helping us because he has a vested interest in committed relationships inside his church because they reveal his very nature, his commitment to the Son, the Son's commitment to the Spirit, the Spirit's commitment to the Father and the Son, and vice versa, and on and on and on it goes. As we learn commitment here, we begin to reflect his commitment to the world. Therefore, they know he died for their sins, because look how these people love one another. You see the connection? The church is the place... God designed where we can learn commitment. A couple of weeks ago, I taught in this series about the centrality of love. For, for our love for one another as it relates to our identity and, and our purpose. And I said, love is your identity. So is commitment. How can you have love without commitment? How can you have commitment without love? The church is the lab where the eternal perfect love of the Father is lived by us with one another. Love is our new identity. It's our life's purpose. Love cannot be lived without people to love. And so our church relationships become all important. We need people to love to learn commitment. So our commitment to our church relationships becomes the key to lasting relationships. Can you accept that? Are you with me so far? Is this logic sound? I think it is. Now this raises a question. And I'm asking you this question because I know so many people who have answered this question in a way that I fundamentally disagree with. Here's the question. Can I grow in the kind of love that God wants for me without committing to a local church? I don't think so. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, I don't need to go to church. I'm part of the church universal. 
Do you learn commitment by loving invisible people you've never seen and will never meet? I'm part of the church universal, baby. I'm just one with all the people in Africa. No, you're not. You've never met all the people in Africa. You've got no practical exercise in love or commitment. You are living a theoretical commitment, not an actualized commitment. It takes a local body of losers to perfectly learn commitment. No, really. You can't learn commitment with perfect people. Perfect people are a default commitment. Oh, yeah, they're so much there. They make me feel so good constantly. Why would I ever leave them? No, 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 no. You learn commitment when you're with a bunch of people who are losers. Now, look around. Isn't God good? Look at the gifts. Look at the gifts of friction and disagreement and offense that He has filled the room with. Oh, let's just stop and praise Him. Everything I need to grow in commitment is already here. All I need to do is learn to hate them. And I'll be fine. Well, I'm making a joke, but we all kind of get it. We can start giving thanks for annoying people. Because they're the gymnasium we go to to strengthen the commitment muscle. Don't laugh, Josh. I've been putting up with you for far too long. <laughs> Brother, I just... Never mind. I, I just said we need annoying people, and we do. But let me get theological for a minute and tell you why the church is the crucible, the place where we learn this. Most of God's requirements for life together in his body can be summed up by looking at what we call the one another verses. You know that phrase? You hit that phrase in the New Testament a lot? 48 times. One another. One another. One another. And I decided to study the one another verses. So I looked up every place where the phrase occurs and I made a list of uh, the one another verses which I thought was really practical. Because if you're going to learn commitment, if you're going to learn to love, how? forget, look, love is not sentiment, people. Love is not warm, cuddly feelings on Sunday. Love is a verb. It is a choice we make to act a certain way towards people we would otherwise like to kill. You know, like your husband. I can't resist. I just love them. It's a verb. It's practical. And I, the Bible is so enjoyable because it is so practical. It doesn't say, have perfect feelings about one another. It knows you won't. It doesn't say, like everybody. It knows you won't. The people you like are the people most like you. Hello? You're looking in the mirror and enjoying what you see. That, that's how you pick the people you like. God says, don't worry about that. I built you that way. Worry about the people I want you to love. Who's that? Everybody. How do I do it? Well, let me give you a list of one another verses to help you figure it out. So practical. 
It's not ooh, it's not, it's not sentimental, it's not, it's not ethereal, it's just so wonderfully practical. Do start, make the goal to do these verses and you will soon find you're liking the people around you much more. It will happen to you, you won't have to create it. As we choose and live, our feelings will follow. So, the one another verses. 48 times in the New Testament, repeatedly in the epistles, they define the quality of our life in the body. And they start with this verse. Romans 12.5 tells us we are members of one another. We are members of one another. The term means that we are spiritually connected. When you, I said this a couple weeks ago, sorry for the redundancy. When you became a Christian, you thought your change in life was vertical. I'm now related to the Father. This is going to radically change everything. What you didn't realize in that moment of accepting Him was you accepted His family. You were horizontally connected in a whole new way. We don't focus very much on that. We focus as self-centered, individualistically minded people, which we are in our culture. We focus on what's in it for me, my person. So we focus on all the blessings from God. We don't think much about the horizontal connectedness. But just like a miracle of connectedness was accomplished vertically with God when you accepted him, so an equally powerful miracle of horizontal connectedness to all of his family was also accomplished in the same moment. We need to reconsider the importance of that miracle of connectedness. And Paul tells us we are members of one another. And what does that mean? That needs to be unpacked because there's not enough clarity and we're members of one another. It starts with a spiritual connection. It connotes belonging to one another. The implication is that we have rights to one another's love. The word used there for members for one another is a word used to describe property rights. It's a practical legal word in the ancient Greek. It really says you have rights to one another's love. I've so connected you that you can have an expectation and say, I have a right to your love. You need to love me and I'm a mess. But I need to love you and you're a mess. It's a practical term. It's not defined in spiritual terms, but in concrete terminology of property rights. Now it makes the rest of the one another verses pretty important because these are the practical things we have rights to in one another as it unfolds. And let's look at them. Number one, the one another verses after the connection. We are to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. Romans 15, 7. We are to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. What shape were you in when Christ accepted you? Thank you. The moment of your salvation was your worst moment. Because you saw clearly who you really were and, you, and it made you sick enough and discouraged enough and tired enough of being you that you actually humbled yourself in that moment to say, I need God and I'm reaching out to him. He took you at your worst and accepted you unconditionally at your worst. And we're supposed to accept one another just like that. Not much room for judgment, is there? Like zip. 
The word accept used here translates as this, quote, welcome into your inner circle of friendship and warm affection. It's not, it's not connoting tolerate. Tolerate one another as Christ tolerates you. Doesn't work, does it? I mean, it just really fails, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it just crashes. Crash and burn on that one. No, no, no. Welcome into your inner circle of friendship and warm affection. That's the quality of acceptance he expects. Number two, we're to be devoted to one another. Devotion. That's a radical commitment word. I'm devoted to you. That's a word that we use in the nuclear family for our wives and our children and our husbands. We don't use that very often for people outside the nuclear family. The only other place we can really use that is the church. Because of the degree of connection he's created for us, we can say, I'm devoted to you. Number three, we're to honor one another above ourselves. Look, pride's the biggest enemy you have, which is essentially self-focus. Pride is just a manifestation of self-focus. What overcomes it? Preferring others ahead of yourself is a daily exercise that slaps pride in the face and beats it down and destroys it. And aren't we presented with opportunities every single day to honor someone else above ourselves? To put the attention on somebody else rather than on me? To, to, to talk about why we like somebody else more than talk about ourselves and to give them honor and to hold them up and to point them out and say, look at that person. One of the things the women did last night was go around the circle and tell each other what they liked best about someone else in the circle. You can feel the joy You can feel the presence of God rising, manifesting in the room as we give honor to one another. It attracts the Holy Spirit. Anytime you're honoring somebody else, God wants to be right there, manifesting his presence and his love. It draws his spirit into a place. Number four. Now it gets a little ugly. This is hard. Nobody likes this. This is the one that causes the most trouble in the church. But it's in the Bible. We are to instruct and admonish one another. Now, here's what these words mean. Admonish means to warn one another of sin, which we see either operating in them or temptation we see stalking them. It takes a radically committed Christian to welcome admonishment into their lives. Tell me when you see me doing something wrong. I need to be corrected. And when you tell me, I'm going to react poorly. Let's Come on, guys. Come on. You know. No. Even after you say that, honey, I really failed today. Please show me when I'm doing... Please show me when I'm doing this again. And then she does. And you throw a fit. 
Who are you to tell me? Well, you asked me ten minutes ago to point it out when it happened next. Nobody likes to be admonished or corrected, but we need it in order to grow. And we're told, he didn't say we are to ask people to correct us. He said we are to correct one another. In other words, we're to be proactive about it. We are in one another's business. If you see temptation stalking your brother or sister, you're failing them if you don't point it out. If you see them in sin, tell them you see them in sin. Don't do it like a Pharisee would do it. Just say, I'm really worried for you. It really frightens me. Are you okay? What are you going to do about this? And you know they're going to react badly. And it's going to stress the relationship. But it's going to remind each of you, I'm a Christian and this is supposed to be happening. Now, how can I accept this with grace rather than with defensiveness? Right? Yeah, it is a good word. But listen, now look. If we are to warn one another of sin, which we see either operating in the other or temptation, we see stalking them. This requires a very close and intimate knowledge of one another. Hello. It is not going to happen at church on Sunday morning as you two ships pass in the night while coming to find your seat. That is not going to facilitate anywhere near the kind of depth of relationship we need to really live this. In fact, none of these, none, none of these one another verses can be adequately accomplished coming to church on Sunday morning alone. Sorry, can't. You've got to know one another and bump up against one another and be in one another's lives enough to have any of these one another verses actually operate. And that just got awkward, didn't it? It's like playing poker and someone just shoved the whole stack in and said, I'm all in. And then we all fold. I'm all out. Well, sorry, guys, but I, I know it sounds cynical, but I like the truth. It's always, I've always liked the truth a lot. So let's just speak the truth. These are hard verses to hear. These are goals none of us would subscribe to except that the Spirit of God is inside of us nagging us in this direction. Number five. This is a good one because we want this from other people. Boy, do we want this from other people. They are to bear with me. They are to forbear with me, which literally translates, they're to put up with me. They're put up with my coibles and my faults and my crabbiness and my getting old and my cynicism and my lack of faith and my abrasiveness and childishness and etc., etc. as we look at me. They have to put up, you guys have to put up with me. Now, why don't I look at the verse and say, I have to put up with you? It's a two-way street. Put up with one another's faults. It means to endure or suffer long. It's long-suffering. Put up with. It's okay. Uh, Every time I put up with you, I'm becoming more like Jesus. And every time you put up with me, you're becoming more like Jesus. It's not like there's no upside. It isn't just the pain of tolerance or forbearance, which is annoying. There's a change taking place inside of us every time we exercise one of these things. Isn't that cool? 
The transformation is taking place. Number six, we are to be of the same mind. Now look, this is not talking about politics. And it's not talking about race. And it's not talking about socioeconomic standing. Hope said it really, really well. When we surround ourselves with people just like us, we don't grow. We don't grow. We need other ideas and other thoughts. We need to be challenged. We need liberals in this church. We need more black people in this church. We need more Hispanics in this church. We need people not just like us. We need more poor people in this church. And we need some gays in this church. We need people who will cause us to reconsider our position. What, to change our position? To reconsider our position and see the world for a short period of time through someone else's eyes. And learn grace and love and gentleness and forgiveness and long-suffering and patience and kindness. We need not to agree on everything. We need a climate in which we do not agree on everything. But we are like-minded in our pursuit of love. Hello? We're like-minded in our pursuit of Christ-like character and loving relationships. That's what we are similarly minded about. And we're similarly minded about the fact that there is no way to salvation but through Jesus. We're not compromising the core. But remember, the core has more to do with love than judgment. So when we focus on the core, we'll end up learning to love one another. And that means living with people that don't think the same way we do. Are you up for it? Because I really believe this, you guys. I think I'm prophesying right now. I think this just came to me. Pretty sure it's the Lord. If we just committed to radically welcoming people that are not like us, our church would double in size within two years. I think God's offering that. If we would be that kind of people. The world is drawn to that kind of people. Our country needs a place where we can talk about the issues in an atmosphere of love and respect. And there is no place in our country right now to do that. And if the church can't be that, literally, to hell with the church. If the church can't be that, we have no hope. I want to be part of a place where we can discuss the issues with love and respect so that both of us end up seeing the world from a bigger perspective. And if America had a place where that kind of dialogue could go on, people would be drawn to it like a magnet because it is in our hearts what we all know we need. I want that to happen. Number seven, we're to serve one another in love. When you became a Christian, we all think, I got a new identity, conqueror. 
Well, maybe so, but it's conquering through servanthood. I didn't become a Christian to be great. I became a Christian to learn humility and servanthood. And the church is a place to learn that. Finally, very difficult, another really hard one. We are to submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 We are to submit to one another. The term used here, it's a military term. It has a connotation of actual submission and obedience to one another. At the very least, at the very least it means this, to maintain an attitude of teachability such that anyone can bring a word of correction to me without incurring my anger or a defensive reaction. At the very least, it has to at least mean that. The only way we're going to live this is long-term, regular, consistent, and intimate relationships, not ships passing in the night. The kind of body life that we're describing in these verses is impossible for someone who drifts from church to church from Sunday to Sunday. Commitment to our local church is essential because the degree of closeness necessary to live these verses is only possible where where we are truly known and truly committed and commitment is the issue. And this brings us to the heart of the matter. Real enduring commitment to even the shallowest of relationships is very rare in our present self-centered culture. Marriages are disposable. Friendships are disposable. Even siblings are disposable. Hanging in is not popular. Now listen. Our culture has defined freedom as breaking commitments without consequences. That is called freedom. Breaking commitment without consequences. And this mindset has infected the church. Churches are seen as religious service providers for religious shoppers. I've actually talked to Christians who tell me they go to one church on Sunday for the great worship, another for their midweek group, another for the Iwana program for their kids, and another for marriage counseling. This is nothing more than shopping for religious services. It is just religious consumerism. And as far as God is concerned, consumerism is the opposite of commitment. Consumerism says, shop around and get what you can for the least cost to yourself. Commitment says, stay put and make the best relationships you can by learning to be a giver rather than a shopper. Make a commitment and keep it. And the reward will be, you will grow to be more and more like Jesus. And your reward will be great in heaven. Are there reasons to break a commitment? Are there reasons for divorce? Yes. I believe in divorce. It is God's lesser of evils. It is a mercy in certain situations. But not the way we practice it today. Are there good reasons for leaving a church? Yes. Moving. Extreme inconvenience because of distance. They're preaching heresy. Hmm? 
Oh, were you ticking them off? Jerry, don't tick them off. Dying. 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 Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we'll raise you from the dead. There are reasons to leave. There's reasons why we break commitments. But commitment should be the rule. And breaking commitment, the exception. And in our culture, breaking commitments is the rule. And commitment is the exception. We've got to flip them back. Commitment requires an energy that we often don't have. It's not, as I said, it's not part of our nature. Where's that going to come from? Father, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, if there's any way you can get me out of this situation, I don't want to go to the cross tomorrow. Please. Get me out of this situation. But if, but if the only way I can save these people is to die tomorrow, then give me the strength to do it. And his father gave him the strength to do it. And we look at these verses and we say, are you kidding me? This is really, really hard. Where is the energy? Where is the passion? Where is the willpower? Where is all of this going to come from? Look. He's sitting in heaven beside the Father. And what he's doing right now is praying for you. Several references. He's praying for you right now. If you'll agree with them and say, Jesus, I need some of your commitment. I don't have it. I'm honest with you. I don't have what it takes to hang in in this marriage. Right now, I don't have what it takes to hang in with my brother right now. He drives me crazy. I don't have what it takes. The people at church are frustrating me. I don't have what it takes. Well, you don't have what it takes. But you can get what it takes. And you get it from him. You simply call out and say, I don't have what it takes. I need more of what you had the night before you went to the cross. And he goes, good prayer. I've been waiting for you to pray that prayer. Now get ready. I'm going to start fortifying your will. I'm going to supercharge it with my will. I'm going to give you some of my commitment. Because I'm living inside of you. My commitment's living inside of you. Get ready. I'm going to stir it up. Now start making choices consistent with my commitment. And my commitment will be there to finish the choice. That's how life works. We just need to ask him to give us some of his and then make a decision to hang on and hang in. Hang on to him and hang in with our present God-ordained relationships. And here's the reward. If you will do this, you will soon find that you like and enjoy who you are becoming more than you like the person you were before. I'm serious. You will also find you're enjoying your relationships you once thought were not worth hanging in for. And you will find yourself closer to the heart of God who is the great committer. And these are all relational rewards. 
you will enjoy yourself more. You will enjoy others more. You will enjoy God more. And these rewards will last forever. All heaven is, is extended family forever. Okay? Let's pray. I'm going to list these quickly in this prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you the one or ones that you need to ask for help on. Okay? Holy Spirit, I ask you as I read through these one another verses that for each one of us in the room right now and people listening on the recording, Holy Spirit, as, as we read these, I ask you to prompt our hearts if this is the one I need to ask for help on and show us the, the face of a person if it's someone I need to accept or forgive or hang in with. Let this be practical, Holy Spirit. Please don't let this be theoretical. Please apply this word to our hearts right now. Number one, we're to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. Who? We're to be devoted to one another. Who? We're to honor one another above ourselves. Who? We're to instruct and admonish. Who? We're to bear with one another. Forbearance put up with. Who? We're to be of the same mind in Christ and tolerate our political differences. Who? And we're to serve one another in love. Who? And we're to submit to one another and accept correction and be teachable. Who? Now ask Him for the power you need. If, if, he's, if he's said, that's you on any one of those, simply ask him for that commitment that you need to live that verse.